Yeah, welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you. Hey, Diddy. <laughs> I haven't seen you since 2018, so it's almost been five years since like we met. Yeah, that's wild. That's really wild. <laughs> like, I and mean, a lot's happened the last five years because I, yeah. you know, my my sober dates changed. Mine um, as well. Yeah, <laughs> and you were at a year when we met because I think mm-hmm. you had to have a year to work there. Yeah, exactly. And I got in there because of uh, you know I just knew someone there and yeah. Yeah, really random set of circumstances, though. I yeah, was still in the sober living, I think, when I was working there. Oh. No, I went to your house once. Oh, you did? Okay. Uh, when it was right after I moved out. Yeah, it was probably right after then, because you had just moved into this place. Um, that's fine. I put, that's the keys right there on the door. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, I, I added this anyway, so, okay. like... If I, you... I tried to get in a quiet space here. Yeah. Um, but I thought no, I left my keys outside the door, so they have No, them. and if you, like, say something, you're like, I want to tell you this story, but edit it out. Like, that's okay. <laughs> Like, you know what I mean? So that's yeah. happened a lot of times, because when you're talking about this kind of subject matter, sometimes people get talking, and then they're like, oh, wait, I can't talk about that for legal reasons, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, well, I haven't had anything illegal in quite a while, so. Well, that's productive. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we never really talked about your story at all. Like, we meeting yeah. hop. Like, for people that don't know, I met Matt. Um, I was, like, just under 30 days sober when we met, um, when you started working at the rehab. And I remember that because my 30-day, you had me chair a meeting that you were secretary of in North Hollywood. Hollywood late night. Yeah. Dude, that, you, you told me before. <laughs> like, I was at a bunch. This is before me and you went on a spree of meetings. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We went on like a wild goose chase of trying to find the most random shit in LA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, we That's... went to the we went to the comedy store every Saturday. Um, mm-hmm. but besides that, we wanted to take the kids that were like in rehab to the most random spots. And that meeting, Hollywood Late Night was pretty fucked up. That meeting I got shot at. I was secretary of that meeting and someone pulled out a gun in the meeting and when I tried to tell well, I tried to break up a fight that was going on in the meeting, and after the meeting, I had a guy waiting outside for me with a gun that came, popped two shots off at me, and I had to go to court and testify against the guy and everything. That is wild. I was just telling my wife, I said that was the first meeting I ever, I ever spoke at as, like, the yeah. main speaker, <laughs> and he said, listen, they're going to be rowdy, and they're yeah. going to haze you, and they're going to yell shit, and they're going to be cross-talk, and they're going to talk shit on you to each other out loud, like, be ready for it. And I was like, if you're letting me do this at 30 days, I don't give a shit, dude. I was a comedian. I'm used to being heckled. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. It's natural being heckled and having, like, some crosstalk. Because it feels like almost you're talking to yourself. Like, I don't care if you guys want to listen or not. Like, I'm going to stand up here and do my thing, you know? Exactly. So we're going to go off topic a bunch of times since we have some history. I already know that. Um, so let's start with um, what was your drug of choice? Uh, my drug of choice was... So heroin for heroin leading into fentanyl. And it was like an 18 year stint on between like with that 18 years. I had a little bit of sobriety in there, maybe some few months here and there. Um, but now what are you now? I'm 36. That's right. We're the same age. So uh, anyway, yeah, your stint yeah. was your stint was 18. But like, did you drink beforehand or were you drinker at all? Or was it just like straight up? No, I want to do some dope. Um. It was, sorry, there. Um, <laughs> trying to get zoned in. Um, so when I started, when I was, 
uh, teenager, you know, I started drinking, smoking pot, all that stuff when I was like 12, 13 years old. And I, I still had that thing where I drank differently. I smoked weed differently. I felt different. Um, and then, you know, like as soon as I found some harder drugs, I went back to my friends, almost like, look, look what I found sort of thing. Like I found this amazing treasure, but they were all normal. So they didn't get it. They thought I was insane. I'm like, Hey guys, I just found this thing called heroin. It's fucking great. You guys should all do it. And they looked at me like, what? We're just donors. Like, yeah, <laughs> get out of here, bro. <laughs> um, but I, I, I can now, where are you? Are you like an only child? Are you the oldest, youngest? I'm the oldest. I have two younger brothers. Okay, and how are they? Are they normal too? Like, uh, none of us are normal. They're one of them is none of they're both doing well right now. Um, mm. But we're mental health sorts of things. Like, okay, like, yeah. Like, no, I I meant like normies in general, but yeah, I know what you mean. Um, so you're the oldest. Are you um, like, obviously setting a tone? How old is? How much older are you? Like, I'm nine years older than my sister, so she's oh, so a young kid. So it's three years and then two years. So I'm my middle brother is three years younger than me, and then one below that's two years younger. Okay, that's how it is with me and my brother. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Van Nuys, Sherman Oaks area. Okay, so you are yeah. from LA. Yeah, from LA, one of the few. Um, from here, born and raised, and then I just kind of I have moved around though. You know, I lived in Atlanta for a while. I lived in Mexico for a number of years. Um, yeah, I want to hear about that again because. Yeah. I, I vaguely remember, yeah, because I remember we went to, we went every Saturday to the comedy store, which right behind me is Mitzi Shore, the person that started the comedy store. And do you remember who busted our balls for being at an AA meeting? I do. Yeah, Polly Shore came up. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. He goes, AA, what'd you guys do wrong? <laughs> <laughs> what did he like? What did he do to end up here? Like, yeah, what'd you do to end up here? Yeah, hey, yeah he went like, AA, huh? And like such a Pauly Shore type of way yeah. too. Mm-hmm. And he goes, probably stoned as hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. like it was noon on a Saturday, and he was wearing like a painter's hat and like <laughs> knee knee long jeans, like definitely jorts. Yeah. And, yeah, it was the most because I I turned to you and said that was Polly Shore, right? Like we saw that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember you telling me a story on one of our many rides about living in Mexico. When did you live in Mexico? So I lived in Mexico. I think it was around 2009 to 2013, somewhere in that range. So in your early 20s. Yeah, early 20s. Um, and uh, yeah any and, any uh, sobriety or is this like no there was you zero, sobriety going, there. zero no and for you zero to t- 18 to 23 just i'm going hard oh i went hard that whole time so i was in atlanta before that i was at a methadone clinic and i was trying to get sober but i was using heroin while i was on methadone and i could not stop i wanted to stop and i thought like getting out of the country might help um which was the craziest idea because i knew what i was getting myself into down in mexico and um I left and I just got a U-Haul, put everything in my U-Haul, drove down there and by yourself uh, with my fiance at the time. Okay. And um, my like ride or die at the time. And then Is she was she um so she was doing it with you. She was yeah yeah okay. But All we right. detoxed on the drive down there. It took us five days to get down there. We went to Sonora. Um, we were in Sonora, Mexico. Um, and once we got there, we we're like something's missing from this piece what's that piece? And that piece was heroin. It's like, we, we just brought ourselves somewhere different. And it's not like anything's changed within us. So 
we went on a search and there was none in my town because my town I lived in was cartel run and they didn't allow, you know, hard drugs like that. It was like, they only allowed like tourist drugs, like weed and cocaine. So okay. I had to like drive up to the border, pick up drugs and then drive back down south, which everyone drives north across the border with drugs, but I was taking people. <laughs> you were in Mexico yeah. coming to the U.S. The only time you drive north for drugs is people going to Canada. Yeah. I, I live closer to Canada than you do, but I know I know a lot of people take trips up to Canada to get the cheaper drugs all the time, especially insulin, how cheap it is up there, yeah. that it's worth driving. I've heard about that. So you got, yeah, when you go to a new place, I mean, no one's moved more than me. I moved 30 times in like 18 years. So I know exactly what you mean. The problem is you get to that new spot and you're like, yeah, okay, I just went X amount of dates without getting high. I can probably go without it. And then, like, 12 hours later, since now you're thinking about it for constantly and you're just OCD about it, you're like, no, I'm on a mission now. I'm going to find it. Yeah. Yeah, and I did. You know, it was a bitch to get at first. Um, How far is that ride from where you were to, to the like, border? Yeah. Um, it was, like, you know, seven hours, eight hours, maybe. Each way? Uh, yeah, each way. But you were like you you weren't coming back into Mexico with like a day's worth of like dope. You were coming back with like no. I actually so I never drove into the U.S. I would just drive to the Mexican side of the border and I'd pick it up on the Mexican side of the border and bring it down. So I never had never crossed the border back into America when I lived. Okay, there. so okay, the border towns would be like stash spots for all the drugs for the you know cartels waiting to move their shipments up. So you drive so you go drive to the border towns. With the one I went to was called Los Algodones. And that's where I would pick up my stuff. And then I would drive it from Los Algodones back down to where I live. And so you would get yourself a couple months worth. Yeah, I'll do that. And yeah. you would actually, you're one of the few people that um, I've ever talked to that was able to actually make it, like space it out. <laughs> yeah. a, lot, a lot of people I know wouldn't be able to make, I know I would never be able to buy a 30-day supply that lasts in 30 days. <laughs> never lasts, it's it's never going to last as long as you want it to. No, no, it's always like a really long because I drove two hours to get my shit. And it was sometimes the longest two hours of my life was doing that ride. I'd be sitting in traffic, just sweating, throwing up into a bag. Like <laughs> yeah. I lost I lost my um I lost my whatchamacallit in sobriety. Um what do they call that? Your uh your fucking gallbladder. Oh shit. Because of being like, I, I was throwing up every single day almost, and it was always bile. So I had nothing in my stomach. So that fucked up my gallbladder so bad that two years into being sober, I was on a bed telling the doctor, don't give me anything. Like, you can't give me anything. Like, I'm like allergic. Yeah. And I wake up, and I first thing I said to my wife was, I feel high. She was like, no, like, that's just the anesthesia. And the doctor's like, oh, we did have to hit you twice with fentanyl and once with the lauded. I'm like, yeah. dude, do you know what's going to happen to my body? I'm going to go in precipitated withdrawals. He goes, no, no, you're not. It's been two years, you said, right? And I was like, yeah. But it still doesn't change the fact that my body's going to react to it. It will, and yeah. It was an outpatient surgery. As soon as I got out the door, I was throwing up. Oh. I threw up for 18 hours straight. I called my 80-year-old grandma. I'm like, when you had your gallbladder out a few years ago, were you throwing up? She was like, no, I was doing, I was vacuuming. <laughs> 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 These doctors put me into withdrawal, and I hadn't touched anything in almost three years at the time. 
Like, it's all it takes is that one time again, man. And luckily, it was horrible. And it wasn't a good experience for me because I didn't want to. And I, and I don't count it against my clean time because I can't help whatever someone does to me when I'm under. Um, so, yeah, every time you go, basically, we'll get back on track. Mm-hmm. Um, you would run out a little bit faster, a little bit faster. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How is it living in a cartel-run town? Because like that's something I don't, I haven't had on the show. Honestly, it was peaceful until it wasn't. You know, I went three years. It was nothing. And you know, like I would go to like you know cartel people's birthdays for their kids. There'd be like you know, uh, ants, like circus animals, and everyone shooting guns in there and all of that stuff. But relatively peaceful um, until you know it wasn't. But like everything's safe. They keep things safe because it's there. You know, it's where they live. You know, it's not even a cartel run town. It's more of like this is where the guys from the cartel actually live and where they kind of. The it's like the know. it's like, yeah, the, the players don't live in L.A. They live around yeah. L.A. Yeah. So they don't want any of the drama in their town. They don't want any attention there. They don't want anything like that. So, um, you know, stayed really quiet. And then um, what do you I, do for work when you're down there? So before I moved down there, I was living in Atlanta, working in finance Um and one of my partners from that company, um, we decided that the owner of that company was really shady and we got out of there. Um, so we basically uh, took our business from this guy, well, everything that we built over there and kind of made it our own thing and did it ourselves. Oh, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And is that what you were doing in Atlanta too? Yeah, yeah, it was. And then in Atlanta though, I was working for a company out there and then kind of when we moved to Mexico is when we, kind of started doing it ourselves because it was like a gray area of the market you know kind of touching on penny stocks and you know some of I've those seen Wolf of Wall. i've seen wolf of wall street i yeah. know about yourself for it <laughs> so it was basically like along the lines of what he was doing you know it's pretty shady stuff but it was like a gray area um well exactly what we dabbled in and um, yeah so felt- it, it was a job you could do from home it was yeah mm-hmm. okay so I'd wake up i mean morning, that's that's an expensive habit to have yeah, absolutely. And but my I had a beautiful condo on the beach at a resort and we you know I had a golf course at the place I lived and I could get out at night. Oh yeah, I'm golf sure. Balls. I was like beachfront property. Um it was beautiful. Um but You're making US very, money living in Mexico. Yeah, right. It so was really, that... it was like I was living like an old man though, is kind of what the problem became. It's like I had I had no one to speak English to. I had no friends. I had nothing that I could, you know, I wasn't living like. A how life. long did the, how long did the girl stay? Uh, she stayed with me the whole time. Okay. Until, um, we then after that we ended up going coming back to LA together. Okay. But now, what was the like? I I know the one time that it wasn't peaceful, but can you refresh my memory? Yeah. Um. So I basically like you know that three years into living there, my neighbor was in the cartel. And he was like a kind of a higher up in it. And uh, we wake up in the morning, we hear helicopters and machine guns from the helicopter. So I go out to the window and there's two helicopters firing their machine guns at my neighbor. So I, I was I was in the beachfront condo. My neighbor had like a, um, you know, like a little villa, basically. And um, they were just firing, firing, firing. And then he, I guess, had some snipers positioned around in other condo units that were started shooting back at the helicopters. So they were, it was like basically, you know, it lasted about six hours, but there was, a, you know, like, so the way, the way it all started basically was I woke up, I tell my girlfriend or my fiance, Hey, something's wrong. Like I, you know, there's like 
fucking helicopters shooting machine guns and people shooting back right outside our window. And she's like, just do a shot and go back to bed. So I did a shot and, then <laughs> and I kind of just watched all this unfold. Um, so his people started shooting back at the helicopters. The helicopters dipped out and did like made sure that no support came in. And you could hear cars being blown up because they were out front and the cartel guy was calling for support to help rescue him. And they were just blowing up cars out front of my place. So on, on the beach side, they ended up having like a landing, like a, you know, like storming like Normandy, D-Day sort of thing. <laughs> where those, those landing vessels come onto the beach and a bunch of soldiers got off and then they uh, stormed his little villa. Um, and then, uh, you know, a bunch of people were killed. It ended up being, I think they said that they killed him, but, you know, the talk of the town was that he escaped through a tunnel. Um, and the military said, uh, military Mexico basically said that, that uh, they never showed his body because they displayed all the bodies of the cartel members afterwards except for his. And they said, oh, well, he, you know, we shot him, but his body was dragged through by his friends through a tunnel. And so it was like basically a tunnel going from his villa underneath my place where I lived. Um, and uh, he escaped, essentially. Um, alive or dead, I don't know. I was going to say, what do you think? Do you think he, ma- you, like, you knew the dude. Like, I think he made up? it, yeah. Okay. Because otherwise, because the military showed all the bodies, showed off, like, don't fuck with us, you know? And, and they like, definitely the wouldn't out. have, they definitely wouldn't, like, I understand what they're trying to pull is like, oh, no, he, he's dead, but they brought him with them. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, don't see that happening because they, you know, they would attract him. There would have been something more. So he's probably hiding away somewhere, still up to no good, you know? He's pretty high up. The reason then, like, you know, a bunch of news articles came out about this. And I guess the reason why was because supposedly he killed one. He, he was responsible for killing one of El Chapo's children. Um, and he was he worked for El Chapo. And there was like, you know, I don't know if you want to leave this in there also, by the way. But um, no, it's just staying in. <laughs> and so, <laughs> So, so if you on his Wikipedia page, like you know, you'll see it. But he, um, he basically he ran the assassination unit for El Chapo and was like the head of their military wing, and then kind of murdered one of El Chapo's kids, tried to go off and do his own thing. So it's, uh, you know, the word on the round town was that um, El Chapo had the military do a hit for him and told the military where this guy's location was, and the military came in and took him out. Um, that all like adds up. Yeah. And it was really fucked up because I went out and I took. Can you say his name? Uh, the guy's name? Yeah, yeah. his name was. I, I don't care. Um, his name was Macho Prieto. Macho Prieto. So if you want to do an image on that, they yeah. will definitely find. Yeah. I because I've done it because you were like, no, look it up, and yeah. like I saw the pictures of the cars blown up and shit. Like I yeah. like that. I, I remember that story. You're like, do you want me to leave this in? Like, yeah, I <laughs> wanted you to tell this. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was bonkers, wrong. and that kind of actually fucked, you know, like my distrust distrust for the government and the systems and all of that, and kind of being an anarchist or a rebel, because it was so fucked up. Um, I would say they maybe killed about, like, six people that were in the cartel, but when I went outside, there was about 20 bodies of innocent people on the road, you yeah. know? So if you look at any of the news stories, it says there's five or six people died, but... They only counted, they didn't count any of the innocent people that were just driving on the road who they fucking killed, you know? It yeah, was, they, they created a war zone and, is, and like, a really quiet... It's not even like it yeah. was in a town known for go- violence. No, no. Like you a, said, it's, like, yeah. a really quiet, chill town. 
it's a fishing town yeah and there's like uh fishermen on the road you know i saw their trucks littered with bullets you know bullet holes everywhere blood everywhere you know like people bringing in their catch in the morning you know just workers if, if you're sober you probably would have been dead if i was yeah well, i think i think yeah. since you were so high you didn't know what the fuck was actually happening and <laughs> all you were doing was just taking it in Whereas if you're sober and you hear gunshots, you're like, fuck, I'm running to my car and yeah, getting the hell yeah. out of here. And if I would have done that, I'd been done. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. So that, you know, <laughs> take yeah. that what you want. Yeah. It actually <laughs> gets even crazier because I did try and walk out because I wanted to take some pictures or film what was going on. And they had American Asians positioned um, in the lobby and downstairs. So because they knew American residents were there. And so we could not leave. So the U.S. was somehow tied in with this whole thing. It was like a, you know, it gets deep. I don't know, you know, exactly what they were doing yeah. there, but they knew that this was going on, you know. And it's not like they gave us a warning, but like when I did try and leave to, uh, you know, I wasn't trying to drive anywhere, just trying to go out and take pictures, you know, from around the corner, like sneak some shots. Yeah, or something. you're always whenever. On. No, you're addicted. I, you're still an addict. You're addicted to chaos. Yeah, you, when I was working you are. at, um, when I was working at. Uh, High sobriety. Uh, there was a like I was on the phone with my sponsor, and I was just outside of a Seven Eleven, and some guy put a shotgun to his head and blew his head off. Like weird shit like that just happens to me, you know. Like it just chaos surrounds me at times, and um, yeah, you know. But it's kind of <laughs> how long? Me. How long did you stick around after that happened? That you were like, okay, maybe it's time to try getting sober. Uh, or, so or was happened. going home first and then sobriety. So that happened, right? And then they did a crackdown on the town, and then I got arrested for trafficking a couple weeks later, when I was bringing stuff down back into the town where I lived. And I got taken to jail, and I had to, you know, I had a couple of local businesses out there. I had to sign over my everything I own, basically. I had to give it all up. And at the courthouse, there was three of us: me, and my fiance, and this guy Tino. And Tino got eight years. Um, my fiance and I were able to bribe the judge and um, they had a car like a limo waiting for us, you know, outside the courthouse. So instead of they basically shut off all the lights in the courthouse and we're like, what the fuck? They're going to murder us. And my fiance and, I, and the guards like started laughing, like chuckling. I'm like, what the fuck's going on here? And then he's like, all right, come this way. So he escorted us out through a side door and there was a car waiting for us. We get in the car, they dropped us off at the border and they said, don't come back. And. Um, I just had to give up everything I owned out there, my business, and, you know, condo, yeah. you know, it was worth it, dude. I mean, eight years in Mexican prison. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, man. That yeah. would not have been fun. So, yeah. especially for trafficking charges, you're doing exactly what even the cartel doesn't want you to do. Oh, yeah, I know. And <laughs> if they would have caught you trafficking, you'd be even in more trouble. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The police got you caught. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... So you I come back up. to the States and yep. you're with your fiance. You obviously got haven't gotten high in a couple of days because you've been in jail mm -hmm. and traveling yeah. and shit like that. Mm -hmm. So how soon before you're back in hometown L.A. are you hitting up with somebody? It took about a month to get back to L.A. But so I was stuck in Imperial Valley. My you know fiance at the time had like a you know, mental health crisis and um uh, I was down there at the hospital with her, and um, uh, then we get back to L.A., and we get an apartment, 
and we both get jobs and we're back straight right back to Houston. Like the day we got back to LA, you know, we we're trying to find jobs. We're down on Skid Row. We just went down to Skid Row because we, you know, my old contact in LA has been so long since I lived in LA because I was in Atlanta for a number of years and then um, Mexico for three. Mexico. Yeah. And I get back to LA and um, right away I got back into Houston and Sobriety wasn't even a thought. It wasn't even like I've accrued these days. I'm going to see how long I can go. And that wasn't even like a piece of your mind. No, it wasn't. And it, that that came because I, so I have I was in rehab. Uh, I went to cry help in another rehab facility when I was like 18 years old. Um, and I was, you know, and I even went to like an adolescent place as well. Um, so I'm familiar with the program and I like. You know, when I was 17, I was like, smoke cigarettes outside the meeting, but I was like, this isn't for me. Like, I'm not ready, you know? Um, never worked my steps, never worked a program, didn't know the book at all, didn't know anything it was about. You know, I got to know some of the words and the language that was used there, but like, yeah, yeah. my ears were open, but my mind was not, um, it wasn't ready to, to accept those certain things. Um, and then, you know, after a couple of years of doing, of getting high out in LA again, um, we decided to go to rehab. So she went to cry help. I went to another treatment center and, you know, I relapsed. Like I've went to, been to treatment so many times. So, but your but, first time going to like now rehab as an adult who's been doing dope for years. Um, what is your inciting incident? What was it that was like, oh, I need to go get some fucking help? I was very depressed. So I was like on, you know, on the borderline of being suicidal. It, Back then, it didn't get so bad, but like later in my addiction, because it took me years from that point when I first went to when I actually got sober to, um, you know, like, and I, my, my depression and my suicidal ideation just got worse and worse and led to suicide attempts and all that stuff. But it was really my depression and my mental state was just breaking down. I was, you know, getting arrested out here and the fear of getting arrested and being kicked. I was doing return fraud or whatever type of fraud I could to make a little bit of money just to get by so yeah because you're a finance guy so you know some of the do's and don'ts but also you can talk shit and kind of like you know how to sell anything to to get yourself something yeah well i didn't so i didn't have to like that's why i hated the scumbaggery of the finance world so that's why i got out of that and haven't done that since um because I feel like a lot of people... I'm talking that. about manipulating. You know how to talk. Oh, to yes. People. Yeah. No, sure. That's what I mean. I mean, you're a master manipulator. Someone oh, yeah. selling Absolutely. penny stocks knows yeah. how to manipulate the fuck out of you. Yeah, yes, definitely. So that that's more along... Because I, I can relate. I was in sales. Yeah. So yeah. I know I could bullshit my way through any situation. I could talk you into fronting me $300 worth yeah. of pills right now. And, mm -hmm. and before it even hit you, realize you're handing it over to me. Yeah. And I was a master manipulator. It didn't matter who we were manipulating, whether it was the cops, our parents, our significant others. We were fucking masters at manipulating people. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and you're going to hustle to get that too, especially when you want to keep getting high. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's what it just became. It's like you get your hustle down and then I, you stick with it. And for years, I was able to find these hustles that would get me by. Um, but it was very much like living like, you know, day to day. What am I going to do? I don't have no idea what I'm going to do tomorrow, you know. Um, and it just was a shitty way to live, you know. Um, and, you know, a lot of all the other shit that comes along with using, you know, like people dying everywhere around you. Um, How long did you stay with? Because you told me, you said X. 
So how yeah. long did you guys stay together before? Like, was it you guys we, both went to rehab together? Not together, yeah. but together, but separate. Yeah, that uh, was it. So after that, we basically got sober for a little bit, each of us, and we decided to call it quits because of all the trauma that was there, and we thought it would be best for. So like, you know, like we both were on the same page with it. it wasn't a difficult decision. Yeah, um, I'm sure. I mean, you've yeah. you you know you sometimes. You're only meant to be with somebody for a certain amount of time. Yeah. And she, you know, was your ride or die through Atlanta, through different locations. But I think it was a good time to maybe part ways and see what else is out there. And if you reconnect, you reconnect. Yeah, absolutely. That's how it went. Now, you know, she's doing really well. She's been sober for quite a while. She has a kid, um, a house. She lives out in Alabama. Um, <laughs> see, you would have yeah. been on the move again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You know, I like, you know, I like the chaos of L.A. It's, uh... I am not surprised by that at all. Like I like I said, you yeah. you enjoy. I remember seeing your stories. You were definitely at all the marches. Um, for oh, Black yeah. You were, you were, <laughs> not only were you at the marches, I swear, you were looking for the most chaotic parts of each one of them. And... Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, I was. I've that's always I had a little bit of sober time part. around then. Yeah. That's when I got some sober time and I got out there and I'm like, oh, I need to find a rush. And it was like, that was it for a while. And eventually the police. So my, one of my relapses, my, this was like my last relapse actually happened during that. The Black Lives I Matter. was going to ask you because we we met in April 2018. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I first got sober. You would have had a year then. I left when I was four months sober. So you were a year and change. Mm -hmm. How long after that, August 2018 is when I moved back. How long did you make it? I went, it made it 18 months to the day, and then I relapsed, but then I... To the day, I, bro? To the day, yeah. And then, like, were you at NA collecting an 18-month chip and then going home and getting high? Um, I didn't even go get an 18-month chip. Okay. I, it was, like, on that day, I don't know, you know, it was, like, stress from probably, I think, working there. There was something going on, there was other stuff going on at home, and... I uh, just kind of, I did all the things, you know, like, oh, call your sponsor and, you know, write about it, give it an extra day. Because the day before I wanted to get high too, and I like, gave it another day. If I still felt the same way the next day, then, you know, like, and I like was doing everything I could think of and trying to be, you know, get out there, go to meetings, live in meetings and all of that. And I still went and got high because it was like, you know, sometimes it's just how it is. And um you know, with the program and being around it for such a long time, that was one of my struggles was I felt like it asked for my perfection because every time I would slip up, I didn't want to be like a newcomer all the time or like, you know, I've been around it for so long. I've worked in recovery for so long. And, um, you know, I like I got to know the book really well and the principles and the steps. And I feel like that's where most of my knowledge or the change came. It was just a little bit of a slow process for myself. But, like, finding a new way to live my life came through the book, really, and working with steps and practicing those principles and doing a temp, you know, um, making sure I didn't hold on to anything that had no resentments, giving, like, myself a checklist to see if I, you know, what I did that day, if I did anything fucked up. And, you know, um, yeah, but it, so I made it six months after I basically I made it six months after that relapse and I got about two years um so like I had that relapse at 18 months and then I got about two years and then I just went fully off the rails um 
and then I got sober again, and then around the, that would be in around I think the times of the Black Lives Matter thing, um, which was twenty May June twenty twenty. Yeah, so I got sober in January of twenty twenty. Stayed sober until June, and uh, I was at a protest. The police cornered us, and like on a street somewhere where there was a tent, and they were arresting everyone. And I'm like, fuck this, I'm not getting arrested. So I hopped in the tent. And there was a guy shooting dope in there, and I had some money on me because I was sober, you know. So I'm like, here, like, take a hundred bucks, and then let me kick it in here. So I was kicking in a tent with this guy. Well, outside the tent, everyone's getting arrested. The cops come in, look, and the guy was like, oh no, we're buddies. And I was like, we were just getting high in there. So like, I started doing some dope, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so that was that relapse, and that sent me on a sick one um, until you know, and that sent me on a sick one for until like six months. No, it was, so it was about November. In November, I was, I got really depressed, and I was on unemployment, you know, because of the COVID thing and all that. So I got, like, unemployment finally backdated, and I got a fat check, and I went to – I was like, well, I could keep on getting high, or I can try and get sober again. But, like, you know, I might not have money to go to rehab or anything like that. So I got – I went to the LAX with my unemployment check, and they had, uh, like, three flights going at the time during COVID. And one of them was to Istanbul. So I just went to the airport and I flew to Istanbul. And I was like, I don't know where the hell Istanbul is. I don't know anything about what I'm doing here. But I flew out to the Middle East. And from there, I got on a bus to get to the Syrian border. I was trying to get into Syria so I could like fight with the rebels. And I was like fucking batshit crazy. Um, and I got into Syria, freaked out, went back and volunteered at like a, a refugee camp um, on the Turkish, Turkish side of the Syrian border. And I ended up getting like six weeks, cleared out my head. I became like normal again. And then I couldn't get back home. So to get back home, I had to go, you know, through a whole maze of things because there weren't many flights coming back. So I ended up flying back from Rome. But when I finally got to Rome, um, I just got off the train and some guy's like, hey, you want crack? I'm like, no, but you got heroin? Kind of as a joke, you know? And the guy's like, oh, yeah, why well, I do. And so I fucking relapse like right before I was coming home and it started an obsession in my head so I get off the airplane and fucking depressed as hell straight to Skid Row and then I had a suicide attempt down on Skid Row and it was overdosed by fentanyl you know like, it wasn't it yeah it was uh, you were, if you're gonna go out you're going out with a big shot yeah I, mean, I was smoking it actually because I had no tolerance with the fentanyl I could just smoke it and then I, I knew that the fentanyl would kill me and, you know, I went out and my window was open and some fucking homeless guy in a tent, my window was cracked like this much. And a homeless man reached in for my tent and Narcan me through my window. Because they saw me and then threw chocolate milk at me right when I woke up. It was like rotten, spoiled chocolate milk. So I just remembered the smell of rotten milk and then the taste of Narcan. And I was getting so sick from the Narcan. But like that homeless man basically uh, saved my life. And it was that day when I actually... It was the next day after that when I checked into treatment and I got my, um, you know, sober day, basically. So that I knew there was an inciting incident. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that there. A, yeah. I knew there had to have been one, but I didn't, you know, suspect it being that like it's chaos. It's like it was, it was really a god shot, though. Like, you know, like I was it was a homeless man shot. A homeless man shot, dude. Like a homeless man reaching his hand and through my window in my car. With him. He happened to have Narcan too, and he saw me in the fucking car. Like, just absolutely crazy. During the day or night? It was during the day. Okay. 
Yeah, and you were just like, fuck it, I'm buying a dose that I know I won't be able to wake up from. Yeah, and I had no tolerance then, because I was just getting back from Europe, you know, and, or from, you know, the Middle East and then Europe, and I was only using, like, the weak-ass heroin I had out there, and I knew doing fentanyl, if I just threw a gram on some pay, on some foil and hit it, I would, you know, I would, yeah. I would go out, you know, and, um, and I did, you know, I was, like, fucking straight, it was a weirdest sensation of bringing Brock back from that, too, um, and... Yeah, so that got me into treatment, basically. So I got back, and I called the guy that was my old sponsor. Um, and he was like, he sent me an address. He's like, here, just, sh- you know, I'm not in town right now, but show up to this address. Sends me an address, and there's a treatment center up in Bel Air, and they scholarship me here. It's called uh, Red Door. And they scholarship me up at the house. Um, and I stayed there for nine months. Um, and, you know, kind of... With, because of my previous, I mean, you know, I just kind of melded into the system because it's like an alternative, kind of where you went through as well. It's like an alternative sort of treatment center. You know, they're open to other ideas. You know, like I did ketamine therapy, and you know, like I go out and I do ayahuasca sometimes. Um, yeah, and, didn't you like go to per, like Peru or some shit to do that? Yeah, I went to Costa Rica to do it. Costa Rica again in a few weeks. Um, I started a harm. I so I work right now. I work as a sober companion. And like a okay. companion. So you, I know you told me that before, but I know there's people that are watching that because you're the first one I've had on out of a hundred and some guests mm-hmm. that actually is a sober summer companion. Yeah. So do you want to explain what that is for people that are like? Yeah, absolutely. So like most of the world knows it as a sober companion. I consider it a harm reduction companion. It's basically what it is, is there's an individual that wants to get sober, doesn't want to check into rehab. And we can basically bring a, you know, at-home detox to you. So you're at home and, you know, like it's very, it's kind of a private sort of thing. So some people for one reason or another, maybe they're, you know, a celebrity or maybe they just don't want to go to rehab and they haven't had the best experiences and they want to detox in a hotel room or at home. And I basically come to them and I can keep them safe. I can do an at-home detox. And sometimes it's just, you know, a loved one is using fentanyl or another hard drug or a loved one disappeared into the tents of Skid Row, go find this person. And, you know, it's basically keeping them alive. So someone, I get brought onto a job and I'm, you know, right there sitting next to someone smoking fentanyl all day for months, it could be, you know, and I have to be there with Narcan, be there to kind of guide them in the right direction towards sobriety, even though Sometimes that's not our goal. Sometimes the client doesn't want to get sober. Um, sometimes the person just just uh, trying to find a better way to, to manage and live their lives with, you know, whatever it may be. And what I've seen is having a companion with you, even if you don't have the initial intent of getting sober, but having a sober person with you that is sober will influence your thinking and kind of change the way that you perceive things. Because it's a very powerful statement to have someone like me, a gnarly junkie, sitting next to you smoking fentanyl. And I have, you know, I don't have any desire to do that. It's just not Yeah, like, it would blow my mind in addiction. Yeah. Like, if I was yeah. if I was snorting a bunch of pills, like, and I had somebody with me who wasn't, it would be like, why am I even doing this? He can, yeah. be, he can be in the room and just watch, like, and he's okay with that. How, what am I even doing? Yeah. So we build that around them and it changes their mind. And they're like, whoa, like, why am I doing this? What, like, maybe there is hope. Like, 
for me, you know, that, that big inciting factor too was seeing someone crazier than myself get sober. Because years ago, when I didn't think <laughs> AA would work for me, I was hanging out with this chick and I was like, this bitch is fucking crazy. And I saw her go through the whole steps and fucking change her life completely. And I was like, somehow, like I saw that, that like uh, psychic change or that like, you know, that mental, so her spirituality changed, all of this change in her head. And I was able to witness it. Um, it reminds me of Jules. Mm-hmm. Jules loved that yeah. chaos too. She was on my show live actually, um, about a year and a half ago. I w- I had like a meeting center for um alcoholics and you know for NANAA, and um I hosted meetings every day, seven days a week. I kind of modeled it after the West Hollywood Recovery Center that you used to take me to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, I, and I had a podcast studio in the back and I would do my oh. interviews there. We eventually had to give it up because of finances and my wife got sick with MS and shit. So like we had too much on our plate to be trying to keep that going. Um, and no lo- local funding because who wants to fund a bunch of yeah. addicts to stay in their town? <laughs> yeah. A, no, no businesses were doing. Where, like, what's the town that you live in or where do you live? Um, I live in Bloomsburg, PA. Okay. It's probably about like forty-five minutes west of um, the Poconos. Got it. Like everyone's like heard of the Poc, like and yeah, I've heard and of it, yeah. and Jules actually, when she drives on her tours to New York City, um, she drives through my town. So whenever she comes through, she'll stop off the highway and we'll hang out. Like the one day we went painting for twelve hours. Like, so, but, and she told her story and it reminds me a lot like you, like moving around and mm. chaos is everywhere. Yeah. Um, like, and it kind of just follows you. Then you realize like, oh, oh, well, it's like that meme. Am I the problem? <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, and you know, like it's, that's part of what makes you want to get sober too, is you can't live like that forever. It gets exhausting. Yeah. And you can still be a little bit crazy or off, but like, I have such a peace within me, and I think, like, that comes with, you know, the job I do, having to be able to, like, be calm around some crazy-ass situations, whether it's someone overdosing or, you know, whatever it may be. So know? what is different now that you can, because you couldn't even be at a at a fucking rally, at a march, and not mm-hmm. want to shoot dope. So yeah. how is it that you can be in a room with somebody now who's doing your preferred drug of choice and even your preferred... Like for me, snorting was my was my preferred method. I was addicted to snorting just as much as I was addicted to the actual pill. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so how is it watching somebody smoke, which was something that you did? I would say there's like three things that are different. This um, community, I have a really solid community around the people who care about me that I can kind of relate to, that I can dive into, work with, come up with projects. Also entrepreneurship and kind of having a purpose because i started a nonprofit as well um, what's it called overdose prevention la od, OD or, or overdose overdose la it's a short name for it but okay overdose LA, odla do you um, have a link yeah i can send that to you yeah no i mean yeah so if you're listening or watching if you go into the description there's going to be a separate link just for that yeah. so what's that nonprofit about so we do distribution of Narcan, fentanyl test strips. We also do events. So like in a couple of weeks or about a month from now, I'll be going down to Costa Rica to work harm reduction at a festival down there. Um, 
Their recovery centers, their recovery is huge in Costa Rica. I just found it, found that out. Yeah, they have a lot of rehab centers out there. And part of what I love about Costa Rica, so the third part about that for me actually is Costa Rica itself, because in Costa Rica is where I did ayahuasca. And that's the third different thing for me, because I was an atheist my entire life. Like, you know, like, no, like, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know. But I had an experience with that where I got to sit in front of a goddess um, literally presented herself in front of my face. Like, I was like, no denying this. This is there. Like, yeah, <laughs> completely changed and transformed the way my spirituality, which is something that I lacked, you know, my entire life didn't exist. And I think that has a huge difference. So you've yeah. done ayahuasca twice since you've been sober two years. Yeah. Well, three times, three times, three times in two yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. And that's gotta be an experience. I mean, I, I'm, I like shrooms or acid like the next guy, but like ayahuasca sounds like a whole different kind of experience. So where you go to a different place. Yeah, it was uh, like nothing I've ever, it's a mo- one of the most challenging besides getting sober. It was the one of the most challenging things I've ever put myself through. It's very, it, very difficult mentally, physically. Um, you think it's not meant for everybody? No, I don't think it's meant for everybody. Definitely not. If you have a calling, you'll know, you know, if it's been calling you, it's been calling you. Um, yeah, I, I have had that calling. I just haven't had the the means or the sobriety because you have to be off of all medication. You have to go on a very strict dieta. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's not something that, you know, to take lightly or to, um, you know, like, I'm glad I did it when I did it. Cause I wouldn't yeah. Or, um, yeah, I think that's definitely a huge difference and something that can give you like great perspective on things too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you're now now you're doing the ODL, and that's basically that your full time. Well, you have your job, mm-hmm. your sober companion, and you ha- you're doing like just as much as you can. Well, it ties in with each other, right? So the sober companion yeah. working with clients, but a lot. You know, recently one of my clients had an uh, an event like an art show, and um, I was you know I brought har- uh, harm reduction supplies at that event, and um, you know so. I, you know, it get it goes hand in hand. I work in recovery and, you know, having the nonprofit um, is like, you know, that would be like, that's what I love doing. I love getting on the streets and just, you know. Being part of the chaos. Yeah, yeah. Working with people, helping out the people who need it the most, too. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And the chaos down there. You know, there's nothing like going down to Skid Row sober and helping. Being <laughs> you know? Well, I remember, dude. Do you remember? That one, driving like, everyone through driving uh, everyone through. <laughs> i was in the, when i was driving the druggy buggy was that yeah the so this was I, yeah, yeah this is one of my favorite stories that i've told so many times <laughs> that like because at this time <laughs> i was in sober i was in sober living i was in high sobriety at this time mm-hmm. and you were working at both but you were a, you were with us on the weekends and you and i always went we tried to find a meeting that no one's been to. We went to that one. Remember that one meditation meeting we found? Yeah, yeah. I oh, that was that was Skid Row. Was that? That was Skid Row. Was that was we, we went yeah. to go to Skid Row for a meeting on a Sunday, and <laughs> <laughs> and I remember all this. And the meeting that we were going to go to at that park was shut down. It oh, was that park. Before. Um, and then we ended up finding another meeting close by that started at like enough time for us to I get remember there. This, yes. And mm-hmm. it was some random church where like we walked in the side and then it had to sit down. It was like a silent meditation. But like, 
Yeah, I remember that. Every time somebody walked outside to smoke, either me or you would have to go outside to make sure no one's going on. <laughs> I remember, I think we have a group photo, actually, from that. And we do. Said, yeah. Yeah, we do. Photo. Yeah, that was uh, Taylor, I think. Yeah. Because I'm still friends with her, too. It's, it's so funny, because her boyfriend lives about 15 minutes from where I live. Oh wow! So I I saw her. I've seen her a bunch of times. I even took her to my meeting center. <laughs> mm. So like that's how close she lives to me now, which is crazy because we were close to shit when we were yeah. in LA. Um, she did not have the same sober date for long, <laughs> but she'll laugh knowing that because she's sober now. She's doing. Oh, that's awesome. Good. So it's always nice to see. Yeah, I have a lot of fun stories. She was a wild one, dude. She was wild. Yeah. She, yeah. Yes, she was. Her and um, I'm not even gonna say the other name, but yeah, she had yeah, she had some funny uh, she we, we tell funny stories about it now. Yeah, it's a lot easier as you know, like your war story that you were in basically a war zone. It, it's funnier now because you made it through to actually be able to tell the story. Yeah. You know, like uh, what's there's one of my favorite bands is AJR. I don't know if you ever listen to them. Um, they're really pop punkish, but like electro, like they're three brothers, um, and they have a song called "A Hundred Bad Days," and it's all about having a hundred bad days gives you a hundred good stories. So, and that's how I feel. That's the embodiment of your sobriety right now. Is you've had your bad days. I have, and now it's like you know, like things have completely changed in my Did you life. work on a show on HBO or did I make that up in my head? No, I did. Yeah, I worked on Deadwood. I was in a freak show as well when I was younger. Um, Wait, how did we skip over a freak show yeah, and working for part. HBO? Didn't you like win like an award technically? Yeah. So I left high school a year early. I graduated like a year early. Um, okay. Got a job working on Deadwood on HBO in the art department. Uh, my department won the Emmy that year. Um, they gave me like a you know certificate of acknowledgement, like you know like a plaque yeah. basically with my name on it. Um, we won outstanding art direction in a single camera series art department. And okay. on that show, uh, there was a freak show that came to film on the show, and I was like, oh, by the way, I'm a contortionist. So I started rolling around with this freak show, and they like lived with me for. I forgot you, know, you could do here. that shit. Yeah, and um, we had. Go a, ahead, give the crowd we, something. Give them something. I can't anymore. You can't. No, maybe I've gotten old, or it's that I go to the gym a little bit, even though I'm still scrawny. It's, I've, you know, like, I lost your, I can do like a little bit, you know, like the basics, the basics, you know, but like very basic, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> that, even now I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. But back then it was crazy. We would play at the Warp Tour and all these parties, and we had a blast, though, you know? Um, so that was like, very early on in my addiction too that was with the freak show you i mean yeah i mean you're a carny i mean there's there's drugs there yeah definitely (laughs) yeah as long as you're showing up to work to contort your body they're going to make sure they're paying you for your drugs even if they know where it's going yeah and it fucked up my head too because you know i'm still in high school like all my friends are in high school so i'd go to my friend's high school parties with and i'd bring the freak show along and we would show up to with these totally normal high school kids that are just like having like a little high school party. And we were all on dope doing fucking drugs, like hard drugs. And we'd like come and fucking do some crazy shit and freak everyone out. And bring the, ca- bring, bring the yeah. chaos. Yeah. And they're like, what is wrong with Matthew? <laughs> Where's the Matt I knew from sixth yeah. grade? 
<laughs> that I had a first drink with. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's so funny that you have some of the wildest shit, and yet you can sit there and be, <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean, and like know how to laugh at it now because what's happened's happened. Yeah. So yeah, um, it has, and like you can't, you know, I have no regret. It was all an adventure, you know, and I'm glad I, I'm alive, you know. So that's all I can do, and now it's just working on each day. Kind of I always. I always say how like I I needed to learn all those things on my own because I'm the oldest I'm the oldest of three too. Okay. And I'm my brother's Maybe three years young. My brother's three years younger. My sister's nine years younger. Mm-hmm. But my sister and I are close as hell too. Nine years less than you know what I mean when your brother's mm-hmm. sister. Yeah. Um, and I'm the only addict, so I I was definitely. I know what you mean by being at a young age and getting yourself into shit early because by the time you get to be an adolescence, like in that time frame, your parents are paying attention to the other kids more. And you're not rebelling necessarily. You're not saying, Oh, you don't care about me. It's just it, it just happens. Especially at our age in the eighties and nineties, parents were like distracted easily. Oh, we now I have a second baby to watch. Okay, he's self sufficient three, he's fine. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then yeah. people stop paying attention. They're like, look what I can get away with. Yeah, and the younger kids always kind of like, you know, they get more attention. They Everything's focused on them. The parents kind of give you a little bit of freedom. But when you get in trouble, it's like you get in more trouble than when your younger brothers or sisters. Oh, my dude. The progression is so real because I wasn't allowed to drink. So what did I do? Becoming an alcoholic at 12. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and then by the time I get to my brother, who is 13, um, my brother was 13. I was 16. I got alcohol poison when I was 16, night before Easter. Um, I was rushed to the hospital. My dad took my brother along with him at 13 years old so that he could see what alcohol does. And my brother didn't drink till he was 16. And I started at 11. So mm-hmm. 11 is when I started when I first had my first drink and 12 is when I started drinking alcoholically i don't mean every day i mean mm-hmm. i was drinking to forget yeah. um yeah. you know what i mean there's a big difference yeah, in my opinion it was your medicine drinking as your medicine yeah it was like bad day fuck it all but drink yeah. and i was yeah. just sneaking from my parents basement mm-hmm. um so my dad took my brother and he didn't have a drink till he was 16 and then when he was 16 he was allowed to have friends sleep over and drink in the basement they were allowed to have slumber parties. My mom would buy the beer. It would be beer only. And it was like just a big like 10 guys hanging out, watching movies, eating pizza, drinking beer. Mm-hmm. And my brother was allowed to do that. Um, and then they get to my sister, the only girl of three. She was throwing house parties. My mom was collecting keys at the door and letting her throw just massive parties <laughs> and making everybody walk home that drove there. And that entire, her two years that she was doing them for junior and senior year, cops were never called. Everybody everybody respected the house. There was no DUIs ever left my parents' house once because my mom Mm. collected all their keys. And plus, like, I was a high chaperone. I was getting high (laughs) in my parents' basement Mm. at the time. So (laughs) I had nothing else to do but snitch on kids. So my... My friends would I would just get all fucking high because I was doing 30s at the time and Xanax and we would just get all high and just like sit across other all around the backyard, just kind of man the perimeter and make sure that nobody's fucking around. 
which mm-hmm. means all of her friends got me high as shit. Like <laughs> with like with weed, I mean, yeah. they, they weren't bringing hard drugs. I mean, they were like, "Hey, where's the spot to smoke?" I said, "With me, come on, let's go." You're paying the toll. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, the parent, our parents, I don't blame them whatsoever. Like they they no. did the best that they could with the information they have i mean they didn't have yeah. the internet they couldn't google shit at one o'clock in the morning that something was going down yeah and then like a lot of the treatment systems back then like growing up and out here in la they you know there's a, something wrong like there's the, the ideology behind sending people to treatment or forcing someone into treatment has never really worked like you can't force someone into sobriety so you know like a lot of times the parents will freak out and they'll look for someone to kind of like, you know, like, like look some for someone to someone for answers. And those answers are like, oh, send them here. There's this, uh, you know, wilderness program or this or that. <sighs> Forcing someone into sobriety is usually. Dude, the wilderness program is gnarly. Like, yeah. do you want, do you, what is that to people that don't know? So it's a program out in nature, basically, where you're sent to learn survival skills and uh kind of be an adult but uh usually they're in places where they have total control over you they can monitor your letters going in and out so if they're you're being abused or something your parents can't see that yeah Um, and don't they like take you from your bed in the middle of the night at times yeah at times i mean that's had i know people that i know people that's what i'm saying like two different people have told me that they were just like ambushed in a room at like one o'clock in the morning like they were being kidnapped and they weren't allowed to bring anything yeah just completely snatched and you like you're a child they're They're not they're not adults that this is happening to no this is traumatic because then once they put you in the care of someone else as a an adolescent they have complete control over you and what you do and where you go and um yeah i was sent to a place like that um so I went to a wilderness center in Louisiana, and that's in how right before I got to, yeah, so this was like, I think I was like just about to turn 18 or something like that, and I ended up sneaking out of there. Um, I, uh, there's some guy, guy, my roommate was graduating, and uh, he was a dentist or something like that, or dad was a dentist, and they came to pick him up, and I, I don't know the whole story behind him, and he had like a really weird hmm, relationship with his family but somehow he got his family to allow me to sneak into one of his luggages because i was you know i could contort and i got into oh the my luggage. god yeah i got into the luggage i went to the trunk of his car and then and he dropped me off in like monroe louisiana and then i came home you know take a bus uh no i took a train yeah it took a while because my parents wanted me to go back in i refused so i just kind of bummed it around for until you know my parents would like kind of let me come back to town yeah um yeah and then you came back and you got right back into what you were doing anyway yeah and then i was in another wilderness center up in montana and at that one it was like negative 20 degrees on the day i escaped so i was there for like three days and i was detoxing and i they were like, no one's ever escaped from here. And they got fucking cows and they're like herding them in. They make you work on the cows, pick the icicles off of your fucking um, cabin. And nobody's ever escaped. And I put on, like, I wrapped myself in all the blankets I could find. And I just walked down to the road and 
there was a truck driver coming by and I was like, I hailed him down and he was like, where the fuck did you come from? And I was like, oh, like I was in an accident, cross country skiing and I lost my friends. Can you take me to the nearest town? And I went to the nearest town. My parents were like, you have to go back to that treatment center. <laughs> I was like, no way. So I ended up staying out there in Kalispell, Montana for a minute until I could get back. Yeah. Yeah, so I had a couple of failed attempts to get me sober when I was younger, you know, so that's why I have like some knowledge of the program. Um, I think you rival me mm -hmm. with how many moves we've had in different places, because like I've lived in five different states in a matter of like 13 years. I've lived in five different states and I moved 33 times. <laughs> so that's but I think fun. the only person that's that can cool. <laughs> that can rival me. <laughs> Did you He's move grown. around as a kid, or did you stay in the same place the entire time? No, so when I was under 18, I would always make it back to L.A. Like, I would go to these wilderness centers, but then I would get back, you know? No, but I mean, like, were you always living, in, did you grow up in the same house, or did you move around oh, L.A.? Oh, no, I moved to a couple of houses. So my parents moved around to a couple of different houses. Um, they moved from Van Nuys, Sherman Oaks, and, um, and moving, then oh, no. I moved out to Northridge, and then to, like, Santa Clarita, to you know so i've been all around la and then you know eventually yeah. i moved up to atlanta and then mexico yeah those are the only places i've settled it's the only place i've like i've been in a lot of places but i've really only settled la mexico and uh atlanta, atlanta. yeah well dude it's awesome catching up with you it's you been too. a while and i'm glad that you reached out i forget why you reached out i post random shit so mm. um yeah you, i think i saw something yeah you saw one of my podcast videos and yeah. we started talking again. I'm like, you're, you're, you got some sober time. All right. That's because the first time I ever talked was because of you. So I've always wanted to have you on. And I knew that you always had crazy stories. Cause like literally the name of this episode is the one where Matt's causing chaos all over. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It was a lot of, and, and it's, you know, things are so different now. It's peaceful. I like, you know, like I'm, get to work and help others and I just keep things simple and I kind of have to you know I still have to remember to take time for my own mental health because you know working as a companion and a lot of people you know as a sober companion like oh a sober companion needs to have a decade sober or this or that you know I have a couple years but the thing that a lot of the serving companion agencies forget is that like a lot of these people are decades sober they're not gonna like so you send someone down to skid row with someone that's smoking fentanyl in a tent or go find my kid in skid row smoking fentanyl you send someone like me and I can do that job, right? And I'm comfortable with it. But most of the traditional sober companions are these old men and women that are like, have this strict one way view of this is the only way it works, but stick them with a fentanyl addict on Skid Row and it's just not gonna work. They're gonna be like, get the fuck out of here. Like, yeah, they're not gonna want someone hanging around them down there, you know? Like, yeah, like, you you looked apart more of like, I can blend you in. Yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, you're definitely a chameleon. I mean, if you can live yeah. in Mexico and Atlanta and LA all over, not even in LA, but you lived all over LA. Yeah. Because yeah. you were living, I think, in North Hollywood when, like, that's, was that sound right? Oh, no, no, that wasn't North, that was East Hollywood. East Hollywood. It was East, I was in East Hollywood at the time, yeah. Yeah, because I Ubered there from, I went, I was at, um, Western well, Melrose back then. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. I, I went yeah. there. I came from another meeting, though. Which meeting did I come from? It was, Thursday night in Santa Monica, um, at Wichita Park. You know what I'm talking about? 
Uh, La Cienega Park? No, the one um, over on Kensington. In Thursday Santa- nights? Thursday nights, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Son of a bitch. I can't think of the name of the park, and it's going about, but it's okay. But that Jocelyn Park. Oh, uh, Jocelyn Park, I mean, yes, I forgot about that one. Yep, I was there, and then you texted me when I was sitting in a meeting, and you said, I got permission to let you break her feud. Do you want to come out and read in my, <laughs> and talk in my meeting tonight? And I'm like, all right, send me your address. I'll Uber up to you. <laughs> so I, I appreciate what you did for me early in sobriety, because you, you, you're 18 months. I went out of 13 months on, mm-hmm. that, on the day. And I was in an AA group at the time that wasn't really accepting of cannabis. Mm-hmm. And we met while yeah. while it was at high sobriety. Mm-hmm. So, like, obviously, you're a proponent. You talked all about harm reduction tonight. And one of those things is marijuana. And I still use it to this day. Um, and you were cool with that. And you understood that. And you still let me speak at a meeting. But in, in conservative mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, they're yeah. like, oh, get the hell out of here with that. Even a lot of places in LA, you know, you got to find your circle, your clique to run with, you know? Um, yeah. You find your community, you know, having that little community is so important. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I went out on my 13th month. I didn't go in and get a, ch- there's no chip you can get for 13 months. Mm. Um, instead, <laughs> I stopped off at the liquor store and got like a six pack of twisted tea. Like, who goes out with twisted tea? That's wild. Like, yeah, I never even had a twisted tea. I don't even know what they taste like. Uh, it, it tastes like tea with alcohol in them. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that's, but I never did pills again, though. Like, besides, like, the doctors injecting me with fentanyl, I still stayed away from my main drug of choice, the oxys. So I got lucky that I was still, I was so fucked up in the head that I was thinking, as long as I'm still working the steps every day, I can still drink. As long as I'm not waking up hungover, I can still drink. And I had all these rules mm-hmm. around it. And yeah. I woke up, and I think you'll appreciate this. I woke up on Leap Day, um, February 29th, and I was hungover for the first time in nine months. And I said to my now wife, like, if we're going to quit, this is the best sober date to have. So we both Leap Day is a rad sober day. That is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot more rare than everybody else's. So yeah. I said, if we're gonna quit, today's the day to do it because we'll have a really cool sober date. And still to this day, I'm coming up on three years, kind of. I don't know when I should celebrate it on the 28th yeah. or the first. You know, well, you can only take a four-year cake on that leap year. Yeah, I get a one. <laughs> four year. years is a one year. <laughs> yeah, it's a long yeah, one year on year four. <laughs> and and of course, then everything shut down two weeks later, and I can't tell you that I would be sitting here, like even doing this kind of show sober, if I would have had not had a couple weeks without a drink. Yeah. So I'm glad, like, like that was my god shot. Was, oh, this would be a really unique day to say that it's your sober date. That was my like hook, and plus I was hungover. It was either drink more in the morning, or you know what I mean. And mm-hmm. I, I knew what the other path was taking me to. And luckily, I was still doing my steps. Like I, I was still, you know, meditation, prayer. Listen, you know, I was still working. Not all of them, obviously, because I wasn't letting God and shit. Uh, 
but now I had now we have a program and I'm, you have a program and it's awesome, dude. And if anyone yeah. wants to check out his nonprofit, the link is definitely in the bio. So thanks again, Matt. I appreciate you coming on and talking. Yeah, <laughs> your stories, man, are wild. Thank so. you, JD. Yeah, it was good seeing you and talking, getting to talk yeah. about this.